Good morning. Haggai chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 5, but first, before I do that, let me pray one more time. Let's go to the Lord. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together. We thank you that even in 2022, there's a good chance that we, we get this morning off of work and we're able to come to this place see one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, sing songs, and worship you, and that you've promised that you are with us, that your presence is in this place. We just want to stop and acknowledge that however we come in here today, we come expecting you to be faithful to your promises because you always have been. So whatever we're burdened with, whatever we're concerned about, whatever we're afraid of, whatever we are excited for, we want to stop and just praise you and magnify you for being who you are in spite of who we are. As we look into your word and study this minor prophet and try to glean from this text something practical for our lives. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would so move in our hearts that this is just not old words spoken by men who are long gone and written down by who we don't know, but that this would be powerful to the salvation of our souls, to the sanctification of our hearts and minds, and that we would emerge from this service more ready and more yielded to do what you have commanded. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1 says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So two weeks ago, when we were introduced to this book, we noticed basically three things. Um, First, in the historical context, we understand that the Jews had been exiled that that didn't mean that all the Jews had been sent out of Judah or Israel, um, but the, the prominent ones had, and the, the worthy and worthwhile ones had all been moved to Babylon of the Assyrians and spent about 70 years there away from the temple. Um, the temple was completely raised in 586 BC. There wasn't one stone left upon another, according to the historical record. 
And when the Jews were sent back from Babylonian captivity, um, they, they came back to a Jerusalem that did not in any way resemble the one that they had left. It, it, it was desolate. And the, um, the decree from the king of the Persians who had overthrown the Babylonians was go back and rebuild. And so they went back and they started rebuilding. And not long after they started rebuilding, there was opposition that arose from those who had settled in the north of Israel because they wanted to participate in the building. And the Jews said, you can't, you're not Jews. We're going to do this. And they got mad and lodged a complaint with the then king of the Persians and said, hey, if you let these Jews build this temple, they're going to become troublemakers because that's what Jews do. And so the king then in Persia said, you're right, stop the building of the temple, even if you have to use force. I just realized I'm not in the middle. There we go. Stop the building, even if you have to use force. And so the building was stopped. And what I drew from that is that there's an understandable, practical, providential hindrance at times to the work of building the house of God and the kingdom of God. It was, it was valid for them to stop. What wasn't valid was 16 years later when the threat had long since passed and they still hadn't restarted the work. So Haggai comes on the scene to get the work restarted. The consensus in Jerusalem is, nah, it's not yet time. This isn't a good time to start the work because, you know, we've got other things that we need to worry about. Um, I compared all of that to our situation here. And what I said was a work was started here, what, 10 years ago, right? And... Um, there, there have been people who have come and gone from this place. There have been leaders who have come and gone from this place. Um, I asked for an on-the-spot count of how many pastors have come through here, and, I, and Carrie wasn't even sure at the time. Uh, th- there's been a lot of turnover. There have been plans that have been started and then providentially hindered. There have been desires that have been laid forward and not come to fruition. And I would understand if there would be some folks here who've been here for a while who say, ah, it's not yet time or some variation on that. Like, oh, been there, done that. Oh, we tried that already. Oh, we're kind of burned out from doing that. And I think the way that Haggai, in response to that attitude, tells the people through God to consider their ways, what we need to do is consider our ways. And what I mean by that is ask yourself some questions. How's your marriage? How are your finances? How's raising your kids going? How's your day-to-day walk with the Lord? How's your testimony in the workplace? Because if you're going to start evaluating the times, you'd better at least have those things on lockdown. If you're like the men of Issachar and Chronicles who knew the times, then you probably have a, a very stalwart walk with God and the rest of us should be imitating you. And what that does is it invokes a little bit of humility in us and causes us to go, okay, maybe I don't need to speak for everybody and decide when the time to build the church is. Then, in a less legalistic approach, I said we should consider our ways as it, approach, as it applies to church life. In as much as you can separate the two, right? You've got your ways and the things that you do in your personal life, and then you've got your ways and the things that you do or have done in the context of a local church. Um, and I asked some questions. Have we invested in ministries which amounted to dust and ashes? 
And I think all of us would say, huh? Yep, been there, done that. Um, Have we felt unappreciated, unsupported, helpless, and burned out on church? And nobody admitted it, but if we all could see our silent thoughts on the screen above me, the answer would be, yeah, we've all felt that way. Um, And so then the result of having had experiences where we threw everything into some church effort, some, maybe some evangelistic effort, some new ministry. Maybe we packed up and moved from one state to another to try to join with a church that we thought was going to be healthy and have vitality, and it turned out that it wasn't. Like All those things that we've done might cause us to now say, eh, it's not yet time. It, just, like I'm burned out. I don't have the energy right now to do this. In many respects, what we've done is we've begun to pour our enthusiasm into things that don't really satisfy because pouring our enthusiasm into building the church hasn't worked out so well in the past. Um, and so it seems like a good replacement is to build our own houses and focus on our own immediate family. And I think, you know what, that's healthy in one sense, to kind of shrink your aim aim small, miss small, like Mel Gibson's character in The Patriot says, is not unreasonable. And there need to be seasons where we do that. But what God says is, you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you're never satisfied. You earn wages to put them into a bag with holes in it. Like all of your investment in building your own thing isn't producing in you the satisfaction that you're hoping that it will because you cannot fill the void that's, that's in the Christian, where we have this profound desire and need to be engaged vitally in the work of building the kingdom of God. You can't fill that need w- with worldly stuff. It just doesn't work. And to whatever degree that you do, what happens is even your passions, the things that you really enjoy, in my case, it would be music, um, my wife, um, the driving i love to like all the things that you like to do they just start to turn kind of tasteless and gray and you're not really even enthusiastic about them anymore because you are misapplying your enthusiasm on those things so it doesn't work the solution to an overly cautious disposition is not an economic study The solution to a burned-out disposition is not some sloganeering or passionate preaching for me. The solution to a pessimistic outlook is not for us to all get together and chant and and paint a fundraising thermometer and have a building project. The, the, The solution for, and we can break this down three ways, the spirit that's disillusioned, the heart that's broken, the mindset that has become miserly, or four, and the mouth that says it's not yet time. The solution is to consider your ways, see what might need to change, and lay those things at the feet of Jesus. That's the solution. And it's not for me to stand up here and holler and yell and rail against you and, and you know make you feel bad. So last week... After, that was two weeks ago. Are you all enjoying the review? Some of you thought, we weren't here. We missed it. No, you didn't. The rest of you are going, he could have said it that quickly to begin with. <laughs> Last week, we looked at the second half of chapter one and saw that in our context, since we don't believe in the temple system anymore, 
what we have to do is stretch the text a little bit and apply it to the building of the church. However, in New Testament terms, I don't believe that means primarily a physical building. Right? So we looked at uh, 1 Peter 2 and saw that the, the church is comprised of living stones and that living stones are people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and believe in him and are seeking to obey him um, and by faith are following him. I suggested leaning heavily on verbiage that I stole from Mike Crawford in Baltimore, that there are four things that we need to do if we're going to plant Springfield Baptist Church this spring. Number one, and, and these are in order of priority. Number one, we have to draw to Jesus. It's essential. If we are not cleaving to Christ, this is not going to work. Number two, we have to develop in community, which means we have to learn to depend on one another, somewhat entrust ourselves to one another, somewhat be vulnerable with one another, because if we don't do that, we're not going to be able to deploy to the culture because deploying to the culture requires cooperation and, and supporting one another. And then the last thing I suggested we need to do is display the glory of God through those things. I also said, I think the first one is easier than all the others. The reason that I think it's easier than all the others is because it's our instinct, if we are Christians, to be close to Jesus. We love him, but it is not the instinct of the lost. And there are plenty of lost people in the church every Sunday. Maybe not this one. I, I don't know. I mean, I can't see anybody's heart. But we can't build a living church with dead stones. Amen? Amen. So the first criteria for membership here then has to be, you've got to be a Christian. You've got to be somebody who loves Jesus and is drawing to him. I'm not suggesting that the only way we can develop in community is if everybody here is a Christian. Because you can definitely have meaningful relationships with people that don't know Jesus. I'm suggesting you can't build a church with people that don't know Jesus. <laughs> people, let me say this, because I didn't say it last week. People that don't know Jesus, who become church members, make horrible church members. Um, and it's, it's like not even their fault. Like the church needs to do a better job of identifying who people that know Jesus are and people who don't know Jesus are. And, and not, not so we can identify them for judgment and make fun of them when they're not there, but so that we can properly evangelize and disciple them. Because what happens is when somebody comes into the church and joins that doesn't know Christ, they are led by their passions and preferences, not by the Holy Spirit that indwells them. And a person who's led by their passions and preferences in the context of the body of Christ does create warfare and chaos, even inadvertently. Church attenders who are too preoccupied with building their own houses are not deeply interested in developing a community, right? So a good sign of whether or not somebody is, in fact, a believer is they are deeply interested in the community around them. And a bad sign is they're not. We've got to be Christians. We have to draw to Jesus. And a failure to draw to Jesus with some degree of discipline will lead to an unhealthy preoccupation with yourself. Look right at me. It's okay that 99% of your thoughts are about you. Okay? It's okay. It's normal. All of us are like that. For the believer, 
it should be at least 1% about everybody else. That's a low bar. I'm hoping we can be like every now and then the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind somebody who's been in the signal group that week saying, hey, I'm struggling with X, Y, or Z. And you'll go, oh, man, I feel for them, and I'm going to pray for them real quick. Like it should be happening. If it's not, you're preoccupied with yourself, and you need to take that and lay that at the feet of Christ and make sure that you are one of his, right? All right, so what are the key thoughts of a person who is disinterested in community? Well, we're fine. We have our family. We don't need a community. And last week, I publicly identified Doug and said, well, Doug doesn't have a family. Do you care about Doug? And a single tear ran down Doug's cheek, and we all went, oh, I feel bad. (laughs) But it's a good example of what I'm talking about. If you can just go, I'm fine. I've got a family. You have a problem. You have a preoccupation with yourself. We might say we're busy. We have a lot going on. We don't have time for community. Well, everybody's busy. Everybody has a lot going on. Nobody has time for community. What you do is you make time for community. You make time. So, you know, if you have the opportunity to, say, go to a Chiefs game on a Sunday, you don't. You go to church. (laughs) I'm just messing with you, Cecil. I would have gone, too. You guys would have showed up and been like, what? Who's preaching? (laughs) James is at the football game. Third, we have a hard time trusting people because we're protecting ourselves because communities are dangerous. I've been hurt before. I always think of uh, the feather duster in Beauty and the Beast when Lumiere is trying to make out with her. And she says, no, no, I've been banked by you before. Like that, I always think that in context of body life. Like I've been burned before and I'm very, very hesitant to try that again. But the spirit of Christ within me compels me and overcomes that reticence. If it doesn't for you, you need to lay that at the feet of Jesus. So the problem with that thinking, at least according to God in Haggai, is that the more we invest in our own pursuits, the more sorrow and dissatisfaction we reap. Our gardens suffer drought. The paneling we're putting up in our houses is infested with termites. Our wineskins burst. Our labor amounts to almost nothing. We eat and aren't satisfied. We drink and we never have enough. And like, it's easy to say that's talking about alcohol. So let me just address that. (laughs) If you had a well of your favorite wine in the backyard and went to it every time you were down, you would never come out of it right? It doesn't actually fix anything that's broken. And I'm not opposed to drinking. I just, you're never going to get enough. Our wages go into a bag with holes. How many of you have experienced that? And you're like, oh, I don't have enough to tithe. Six months later, oh, I still don't have enough to tithe. But you're making more. What's happening was the money. And you sit down, you do your budget, and you're like, this just doesn't make sense. Like it There should be more here than there is. We've all experienced it. And it's the Lord being like, I'm going to get what's mine. Just a matter of whether you write a check willingly or I get it some other way. He always gets what's his. When we come to step three and we want to deploy to culture with wineskins that are wore out, houses full of termites, money bags with holes in them, we can't. We can't deploy to culture. We don't have the energy to. We don't have the enthusiasm to, and we don't have the community to do it. So 
How are we going to be hospitable to strangers if we can't do it with one another? How are we going to be forgiving if we can't do it to one another? How are we going to evangelize if we can't sit and preach Jesus to one another with some degree of regularity? If it's just not a priority in your heart to be here and be part of this, how is it going to be out there? So what did the people do in Haggai? We saw they just turned around and got to work. And the result was in verse 13 of chapter 1. If you want to just glance at that. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message and said, I am with you, declares the Lord. So God was with them. That was the result. And I love the simplicity of this. Haggai gives the message. They all go, oh, and they turn and they go to work. And it was, I mean, super simple. There wasn't a bunch of self-flagellation. Nobody put on the salise belt or sackcloth and ashes. They just got to work. And I think that's what we need to do. Not today, but in the coming weeks. We need to just turn and and get to work. And then God will be with us. We're going to see more about that this morning. So verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, that was the introduction. (laughs) 20 minutes long. In the seventh month, on the uh, 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Um, I don't think I'm alone in this. When I was young, I had this experience a number of times. Um... When you're, when you're like a child, you have ideas for things that you can build and you attempt to put those ideas into action and the result rarely ends up being what you were hoping, right? So um, if it's a spaceship out of furniture or a Lego thing or one of those glue together models, it just... It's kind of, it just doesn't, it's not what you'd hoped when it, when, it, when, it, when it gets over with. So the date here is October 17th, 520 BC. Chapter 1 ends on September 21st, 520. Chapter 2 begins on October 17th. That's not quite four weeks. It's a little shy of, of four weeks. And the word from God here is interesting. He addresses, it seems like he's addressing the old folks. He says, how many of you have, have recall, or we'll expand it and say, how many of you have heard what this temple used to look like? And compared to what it used to like, look like, what do you think now? Right? And it's like the folks that were working on the temple that three and a half weeks-ish ago turned and got to work are now looking at what they're doing and it's like when you were a kid and you set out to build something and you're getting close to the end and you're like this is not what i hoped these people are working on this temple and they're looking at it and they're going oof like it used to have these crenellated pillars and there was marble and bronze and gold and now it's just not that impressive. So they're, they're not thinking too highly of what's going on. All right, so let me just make some application. Things are changing here at 189 Locust Street, right? Slowly but surely. Um, since we got here in September, we added that screen 
so that people over here get to sing as well, right? <laughs> it was already here. We just hung it up. So that was a change. We gutted these two storage rooms. This, uh, there's problems back there where like water just comes in. So be aware of that if you ever decide to go there. But we gutted those two storage rooms. There were a bunch of you who came up here on a Saturday to help with that. And uh, we got all the rusty nails out of the volleyball courts out there. And uh, Lee's kids like took apart old uh, tetanus bearing picnic tables. And we loaded up Gail Matheson's trailer, you know, five feet above the, the walls with trash that he then hauled to the dump. Right? So that was, that was progress. That was a step in the right direction. Um, Carrie Smith and the kids cleaned most of these chairs. I know we've already trashed them again, but at the time, that was great. We got some of the donut and what dog hair or whatever else was in there out of them. So that was a step in the right direction. There's a nice new gate over here by the north uh, side of the building, by the parking lot. Roy, yesterday fixed the lock. None of you know this, but you had to hold your mouth just right to get that door to open, and now it's fixed. So that's progress. Matt and I moved the seats around again last week. We're like, I, I was like, I have another idea for how we can set this up, and so we moved it, and some of you came in and were dismayed because you felt like you finally had a spot, but that's actually progress. We're making forward progress. Now if you're sitting over here, you can't see the words, so... Uh, we moved that speaker. It used to be here. We moved that over there. Tim moved that last Sunday over there. Makes more sense to have a speaker in each side of the room, right? So that was progress. Um, you all don't seem very excited, but I'll keep going. Uh, we moved the band to the middle instead of over there on the side where it was weird. Um, we're introducing new songs all the time, and we're making plans to actually launch as a church late spring, early summer. And all these little baby steps are leading towards that. Most of us <clears throat> have probably already spent an embarrassing amount of money from our own checking accounts on this place. Amen? Right? I'm not the only one. It's just like, well, but the church needs it. So you just buy it. I'm not the only one. Okay. Because then it sounds like I'm bragging if I am. Did you all know? Um, and none of that includes all of the things that we've been doing here <clears throat> for the last 10 years. Not, like, I don't even know. I don't have that list. I don't know what's happened here since 2012. But it's all, it's all movement in the right direction. The problem is, I'm betting some of us roll up, bottom your car out as you're trying to get in the parking lot over here on that ridge where there's like cement and then a 16-foot drop off to the gravel. And you think, this is not as impressive as the church, as plural, that I drove by to get here this morning. The Catholic one over there and the Methodist one over Like, you can't help but think that when you roll up and you're like, yikes. There's literally a window missing from the entryway vestibule thing. It's like, it's okay. We can be honest about this. Like the people who were working on the temple it's kind of hard. Like you go, it's not what I was hoping. I mean, it's progress, but it's not what I was hoping. And then discouragement sometimes barges in, sometimes it creeps in. But in the case of these people building the temple in Haggai's day, it took 
less than a month for them to start getting discouraged. The building had resumed, the people had repented, they got back to work, and 26 days later, they started feeling like maybe it wasn't worth it. What do you think is going to happen to us? Oh, we're better than them. That won't be it. Come on. It's 100% going to be us. Hopefully not all at the same time, but it's, we're going to have moments where, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe the weather isn't cooperating, maybe things just don't look that impressive, maybe we have to tear something out and redo it. Maybe the end result just doesn't stack up to what we know we've seen in churches before. Like, that's a good possibility. We know discouragement because, like, there's people that were planning to be here and, and got sick on Saturday when all of their hope was on being here today with us. I know, I know, I know, Carrie has got to be climbing out of her skin right now because it's, I think this is the third week. She can't be here because she's sick. Some of us know what that feels like. You're counting on it. And then your body betrays you. And who's in charge of that? Like It's not like you can make your mitochondria be more powerful and your DNA heal. Like you, you, That's in God's hands, right? He's the great physician. We want so badly to be useful, but our bodies don't cooperate. We know what needs to be done, but sometimes the resources just aren't there. What needs to be done is that monstrosity needs to come down, and it can, one of you can have it, and a smaller, more appropriate one needs to be put up over. We know what needs to be done, but we lack the resources. Blow that out. Right From TVs to the ministry of the church, the mission of the church. We know what needs to be done. We don't have all the resources. And it's discouraging. And that discouragement tends to compound. We want to be excited about church, but life keeps knocking us down. We get distracted by a sick spouse or kids. We get distracted by our own flooded basement, our own broken appliances, maybe a major issue at work. Like, how many of you drive to church thinking about work? I'll go first. I do it. Yeah, thanks, Jenny. Jenny and I do it. None of the rest of you do. Congratulations. These people, 26 days earlier, had turned away from being preoccupied with their own houses and gotten busy building the temple, and now they're already discouraged because it just wasn't looking as impressive as they hoped. But let's look at God's remedy for our discouragement. What does he say? He says, be strong, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, declared the Lord. Work, for I am with you. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So God has two words of encouragement for the people, and we're only going to look at one of them this morning. And it's the most simple, most beautiful. I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst because I promised that it would. Do not be afraid. I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst because I promised that it would. Do not be afraid. When you're looking at the landscape of your investment and it's a little more than dust and ashes, you will be tempted to despair. So I invested 25 years of my life in the first church. 15 of those I invested vocationally, meaning I was on staff. Um, The moment I dared to suggest that things could be done differently 
and launched out on my own to do things differently, I became as nothing in the sight of many of those people. My motives were retroactively impugned. My reputation was systematically destroyed. My preaching was called poison, literally. My service was mocked. My plans for the future were laughed at. I was called an enemy. I was treated like an enemy. I was accused of doing things that I had absolutely never done. And then anyone who dared to throw their hats in with me started to experience the same treatment. Some of you lost your jobs. Fact. Some of you lost dear friendships. Some of you literally got yelled at. Some of you got ignored. And so for almost four weeks, it was just shy of four weeks in August, it was about 26 days we met at my house. And all I knew was that God had called me to preach, but it seemed very strange to me that the exercise of that calling would be happening in my basement. And I must confess, by the second week, I was fairly discouraged. Like, why is this happening? This is not at all what I was promised or what I had envisioned. And so I'm reading the Psalms and I got to Psalm 15 and I was like, oh yeah, that's right. God's with me. And, And I was studying it and thinking about who's eligible to abide in the presence of God. And it ended up that I was like, I've got to preach this to these people that are gathering in my basement. And so I put together a, a sermon on Psalm 15. It wasn't a great sermon, but it's on our podcast page. If you want to go listen to it, you don't have to. In the process of putting together that sermon, I was reminded of this essential truth, that the, the promise of God for you in whatever your circumstances is the same as what he says in Haggai 2, 1 through 5. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. My spirit remains in your midst because I promised that it would. Do not fear. By the time that sermon was ready, before I preached it, I was back in contact. Just There's no way to explain these things. By some miracle with John and Andy Smith. I hadn't talked to him in like a couple of months And one thing led to another, and then I'm talking to Cecil, and then I'm up here meeting with Cecil and Lee and Bridget and Carrie, and I don't know if Kyle was there the first time. And, and, And then pretty quickly, we were here in September, right? Now, I I was tempted when I thought of the illustration and the uncanny similarity in the passage of time. I was tempted to leave out the part where I was put in contact with Cecil and we ended up here because that's not the point. The point is in the midst of the most profound discouragement your heart may ever experience, God is saying, I am with you. That's the point. So when, when, you're in those moments in life and none of your usual tricks are working and you've run out of ideas and inventive ways to solve the problem. When you're six, it looks like this. You've got the whole fort constructed, but now the blanket that's supposed to cover the entryway doesn't quite reach. When you're like 10, it looks like you got rubber cement on the canopy of the model jet that you were building and it's ruined. 
When you're 26, it's the wall that you put up in the basement somehow isn't plumb and now the door always swings open. When you're 36, it, it's like the, the finances aren't where you'd like them to be. When you're 46, the marriage maybe isn't firing on all cylinders anymore. When you're 66, it's that the retirement isn't what you were hoping it would be. And when you're 76, it's that your body doesn't work like you need it to. But there are always things happening in every season of life that will discourage you. And what God is trying to tell his people is, don't be afraid. Don't despair. I am with you because I promised. Amen. Not because you're amazing. So look at 2 Corinthians 12. <coughs> he doesn't promise that we'll have a thick head of hair when we're 41. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 we're going to pick it up kind of in the middle of what Paul's saying. He says, To keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I had received, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I know that many of you have struggles like the one Paul is describing. Some thing or some circumstance in your life that makes you feel like, it makes you feel like, listen, it makes you feel like all hope is lost. I know that. And if you're not right now today, you have in the past and you will in the future, go through a season where it feels like, it feels like, all hope is lost. It's a situation that if you could just change, you would be so much more useful, so much more productive in the kingdom of God. If I could just get these circumstances changed, I could really go to work for Jesus. Or I would be happier at work. Or I would be a, a, a greater joy to be around for my family. Like I would just be a better Christian if my circumstances were improved. But th this is the thing. God did not, look, God did not miraculously infuse the temple with diamonds and gold and bronze in order to change the feeling that the people who were building it had. That was not what he did. What he did was he said, listen, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. I shame the wise with the foolish. I shame the strong with the weak. I don't want people to think you did this in your own power. I want them to know that you did it in my power. So relax, I'm with you. Amen. Then we got to address this and with this I'll be done. If it doesn't really matter what your situation is, if what really matters is who's in your situation with you, and that's what I'm saying, what really matters is who is in your situation with you, the devil is really good at making you think things like this. He's not with you because you're not doing a great job. He's not with you because you're not very strong. He's not with you because you're not very insightful or wise. 
He's not with you because you don't always make the right decisions. He's not with you because you're not faithful. Find any of that in the gospel. It's not, it's not there. The essential promise of the gospel, if, you'll, if you can just go back in time with me a few months, is in essentially this. Number one, God created and it was, it was good. Everything that he made was good, including Adam and Eve. God commanded, and it was for our good. Our greatest satisfaction, our greatest active satisfaction. Actually, let me say it this way. God created, and it was for our good. And our greatest passive satisfaction is found in communion with our Creator. That's just our enjoyment generally, passively. Being in the presence of our Creator, satisfaction. Our greatest active satisfaction, that which we do, is found in obeying what He's commanded. So He said, you can eat from any tree in the garden except this one. Don't eat from that one. And the day you eat of it, dying, you'll die. And that was our opportunity to experience active satisfaction through obedience to him. Instead, we sinned and it broke everything, including our communion with God. By actively violating the law of God, we thrust ourselves into an eternal curse of separation from him. That's reality. That's what sin does. God covenanted to restore that communion. He promised There's going to be a seed of the woman. And he's going to restore the communion that I'm supposed to have with my creatures, with my people. And what unfolds all through the rest of the Bible, and I mean, we're in Haggai, right? And I think there were two people who had ever studied Haggai before in church. But what's unfolding, and we're seeing it right here, is that promise. I want to be in communion with my creation. That's the heart of God. So Jesus didn't go, God, I know, Father, you're really mad at these people because they screwed up. Let me go down and try to fix it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the Father's heart is so full of love for you, for you, like right now. If there's life, there's hope. He loves you. He's not like kind of sorry that he chose you. He loves you. And the whole word of God as it unfolds is him displaying that and demonstrating that and trying to show us, I want to be with you. So Haggai 2, I mean, it opens up with, this is discouraging. Life kind of sucks sometimes. And God says, the remedy is you need to remember, I'm with you. You have my presence with you. It's the most shocking, awesome, breathtaking thing that he provides It's his presence. Maybe the reason that we're discouraged is because we're hoping for lesser things. Maybe the reason we're discouraged is because we don't properly value the presence of God. You you consumed with work? Come on, what, what worry consumes you? Here's the problem. You are thinking more highly about that concern than you are about the promised presence of the eternal creator God. He is with you. Like, what can you not handle if he's with you? The reason we're discouraged is because we don't properly value that presence. Or maybe the reason we're discouraged is we think that the presence and pleasure of God is found in our circumstances. Let me say that again. 
because I don't think Vic liked it. Maybe the reason that we're discouraged is because we think that the presence of God is found in our circumstances, and it is not. It is not. We think we will know that God is with us because things are going well or because we're feeling well or because we don't have any troubles. And God is saying, no, look right at me. God is saying, you know that I am with you because I promised to be. That's all you need. When has he ever not kept his promises? The closest you could say he ever got to not keeping his promise was when the perfect son of God hung on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, something in the fabric of the relationship between the father and the son changed. But why did that happen? So that he could be faithful to you because he wanted to love you. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when I came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. That's my exhortation to us today. As we move toward the goal of planting, discouragements are going to come. They will come. As we keep pressing... I'm almost done, Vic. Sit down, Riley. I'm almost done. As we keep pressing toward that goal of drawing to Jesus, and as we're developing in community, and we're preparing to deploy to culture, we need to cling to this promise. I am with you. Because if we let go of that one, all the rest of it's going to crumble. So let's be a people who draw near to Jesus this morning in preparation for those other responsibilities. Amen. Let's pray.